God, thank you for this, um, this glorious day, this day where we rise and we see the sun rising and we're reminded that, that you never slumber, you never sleep, that you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and that your mercies are new today. And God, we are grateful that we get to live and breathe as ones who have been called uh, into your forever family. And God, I thank you that you have proven yourself to be a hospitable God, that you are a welcoming God, that you brought us in when we were strangers and sinners. And I thank you that you now call us friends and sons and daughters. God, I pray that uh, you would uh, enable me to uh, stand behind your word, to not bring any offense to your word. Spirit of God, I pray that you would be active in all of our lives this morning. God, I pray that you would um, transform us, those who have been regenerated, that have been brought from death to life. I pray that you would transform us into more of Christ-likeness. And God, I pray that if there's anybody here that does not know the hope of Christ this morning, I pray that they would, uh, that you would draw them this morning uh, through the uh, grace and love of our sovereign, good, and gracious God. We love you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. amen. This is really uncomfortable for me, having people in the front row. I'm, I'm just not used to that. Like, you're in my space. So I'm just going to, like, come back a little bit. Right, there we go. Yeah. And um, you in particular, <laughs> like to have you there. We... Uh, if you're new with us here today, we are um, engaged in an eight-week sermon series um, called the One Another's of Scripture. And uh, typically what we do here at Windsor Community Church is we teach through a book of the Bible. There's 66 books or letters um, in the Bible that are God's word to his creation. And uh, we don't want to add or take anything away from his word, so we typically just teach through books of the Bible. But we, just, we decided to take a little bit of break. We, we just taught through Hebrews, and we're going to be teaching through uh, Malachi in two weeks. Uh, but we're taking this eight-week um, break to, um, to teach on something called the one another's of Scripture. There are 59 one-anothers. We're teaching through eight of those. And, um, and the one-anothers are just like they sound. They are for one another. Um, they inform us as Christians how to live um, in light of the gospel, how to um, love and treat one another so that God would be, uh, receive maximum glory, we would receive maximum joy, and the onlooking world would see through our actions, our love for one another, they would, they would see uh, the love of Christ. The community called the church is made up of, of imperfect people who were once strangers but have been welcomed and adopted into the family of God. Christ's church is a community in process. We haven't arrived. Um, oftentimes the world looks at the church and calls us hypocrites. And you know what? We are. Um, if we weren't, Jesus wouldn't have had to come. And so we are hypocrites who are growing in Christ-likeness and learning not to live as hypocrites, but as one who, ones who have been redeemed. A church's doctrinal statement, if you go to our website, you'll see what we believe. Uh, it's called our doctrinal statement or our statement of, of doctrine. And, um, and if you want to know what we believe as a church, go to that doctrinal statement. But if you want to um, 
But if you want to know if we really believe what our doctrinal statement says, um, watch the way that we relate to one another. That's how you can really tell if we believe our doctrinal statement is how we live in the context of one another, a relationship with one another. Francis Schaeffer said this. He said that the beauty of human relationships is not an optional add-on for the otherwise complete biblical church. This is an understatement. The world that we live in is angry, it's divisive, it's vindictive, it's partial, it's trigger-happy. And the church doesn't always look different. God receives the glory due to him when the people of his new community, his redeemed community, look and live differently. And so we thought it would be good to take eight weeks and just be reminded of our call to look and smell differently than the world that we live in. Today we're going to focus primarily on the call to show hospitality to one another. Show hospitality to one another. Over the years, uh, Nancy and I have been married for 42 years, and over the years we have opened our home to many people to uh, stay with us. It ranged from one person spending one night to a family spending a year. Uh, One time we had an entire um, worship band with Campus Crusade for Christ arrive in a Greyhound bus and stay with us for a weekend and park their bus in the neighbor's driveway. He wasn't home. (laughs) I'll tell you that I haven't always been the most joyful host. Even though we've had a lot of people coming in and out of our house, um, there's been a lot of grumbling, if not out loud from my mouth, um, behind closed doors in my heart. For me, opening our home has been easy, quite frankly, because we have always had a place. We've always had extra place in our home. We've had a basement. We've had extra bedrooms. But I didn't always feel like giving space in my life to engage in the context of relationship with the people that are staying with us. Sometimes our home was more like an Airbnb, a free Airbnb. And there's nothing wrong with Airbnbs. There's nothing wrong with having Airbnbs. There's nothing wrong with staying in Airbnbs. But an Airbnb is not hospitality. Um, We have provided food and drink and a comfortable place to stay. But at times... It was at times when we made space in our place, in the midst of our busy life, to eat meals and engage in late-night discussions that had the greatest impact on our life and the people that were staying in our home. You see, biblical hospitality takes place in the context of relationship. It involves a place, a place to welcome people into, but it also involves a space where we open up ourselves, our hearts, to the people that are staying in our place, and then it involves grace, that we're conduits of God's grace. So actually those three words I'm going to talk about a lot in this sermon, that a place and space and grace, that are three necessary elements to practice biblical hospitality. You see, it's easy to open, uh, open up our home and have someone stay in our basement, but it's much more sacrificial and difficult to make a space in our hearts and in our schedules to welcome people into our lives. Opening a place in our home is good, and I hope you're doing that if you have the space or if you have, if you have room. But creating a space for relationship is better. So let me ask you this morning, how are you thinking about hospitality? How have you always thought about hospitality? 
Maybe you're saying, well, that's good for you, but it's not my gift. Maybe you're saying, well, you're an extrovert, I'm an introvert. And hospitality is the business of extroverts. You might say, well, you don't know my life. We got crying babies, we got kids in multiple sports. Uh, we have, hardly have time to eat dinner together. We're too busy. You might be saying, well, you know, your house has room, but ours is too small and it's too messy. Showing hospitality is not for a certain class of people who are wired a certain way and who have their life together. Because if that was the case, we would never have people in our house. The call to show hospitality is for those who have experienced the grace-saturated love of a, of a hospitable God. You see, when we open a place in our homes and make space for relationship, we put ourselves in a position to be conduits of God's grace to others. And when we do that, we experience maximum joy and we glorify the giver of true and lasting grace. Biblical hospitality is motivated by, by the welcoming love of God. And it moves us to open a place in our home and create a space for relationship and to be conduits of God's grace to one another. Are you starting to get it? Place, space, and grace. And this grace, after we open up a place and we open up our hearts for a space to engage in relationship, the grace that we extend might be a trickle. But it's God's grace flowing through us. And all we're called to do is to create a place, open our hearts for relationship, and then turn on the spigot and let the grace of God flow. So today, my prayer is that you would take the next step, that wherever you're at with hospitality, however busy your lives are, whatever the size of your house is, whatever your gifting is, um, however messy your house is, I pray that you take the next step towards biblical hospitality. The health of this church depends upon it. Our witness depends upon it. Let me give you just a high-level context to the passage that we're um, speaking to today. Peter wrote this letter, 1 Peter, uh, to Christians, um, Christians that were in the midst of suffering and trials, and he wrote it to remind them of the riches of their inheritance and the sure hope they have of Jesus returning and then how we should live while we're awaiting that return. At the beginning of verse 7, today's passage, Peter reminds us of the nature of the times in which he lived and the nature of times that we live today. He says this, The end of all things is at hand. Peter is obviously talking about the nearness of Jesus' return. The end is near. If Peter isn't a, the apostle of doom and gloom, He's actually the apostle of hope. He isn't heralding an unaltered reign of darkness, but an eternal reign of the risen and ascended Christ. Here's how he opened up this letter to that church in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance 
that is imperishable, undefiled. It's, unfa- un- it's unfading. It's being kept for you, Christian, in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The end of all things is at hand. Jesus' incarnation, his death, his, his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father means that the stage has been st- set for Jesus' final act of redemption where he returns to judge the living and the dead and to set up his eternal relationship where all who, by, who, all who put their faith in him will have a seat at his eternal table. The sure hope of this apostle, Peter, 2,000 years ago, is the same as the hope for the Christian today. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, he says, the end is near. Jesus is coming back. Therefore, live this way. And we're going to see in these verses, 7 through 11, that Peter presents four things to embrace. The first he's going to tell us to embrace is an eternal mindset. And the following three are relational actions that flow out of this mindset. Since the end is at hand, be self-controlled and sober-minded. That's the mindset. And then the three uh, relational actions are, verse 8, love one another earnestly, show hospitality to one another, and serve one another. And then the last text of the last uh, verse of this text summarizes the overarching purpose of living this way. So why should we live this way? He tells us at the end of verse 11, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter's aim um, in this passage is the same aim for all of Scripture, that God would be glorified. The chief end of man is to glorify God in what? enjoy Him forever. As Christians, that's our aim, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So living out verses 7 through 11 glorifies our good and gracious God, and it brings us joy. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, verse 7, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He says, live in light of the beautiful reality that this life is temporal. Oftentimes we live as if this life is going to go forever. Live in the beautiful reality that this life is temporal and Jesus' return is near. This is a call to live in love and serve intentionally. The imminent arrival of the end is not a call to simply gaze into heaven and wait for Jesus' return. It's also not a call to live disconnected lives from other Christians. It's not a call to live disconnected lives from the church. If you're a Christian, by definition, you belong to the church, not just big C church all over the world, but you're to belong to a local church where you can be, where hospitality can be extended to you and you can extend hospitality to other believers. This call is for believers to live self-controlled and sober-minded so we may be devoted to prayer and maximize our usefulness in God's kingdom. This is not our natural inclination. My natural inclination is to binge watch the, what's it called, the shield of, agents of shield. That's my natural inclination. We're inclined to live as if we have, will have tomorrow 
And we're inclined to live in such a way that we build and protect our own kingdom. But that doesn't last. It's also, um, to be sober-minded and self-control is to live in the reality that this is not our home and that the only thing that will will last is relationship, our relationship with God and our relationship with His people. What if we really believed that Jesus returned, that Jesus returned or our death might happen before Christmas? What if we really believed that? How would that impact our relationships? When I attend or officiate a memorial service, I always leave with a sense of my mortality and the fragility of life. Oftentimes I vow when I leave that memorial service, I vow to spend more time in intentional relationships with the people God has providentially placed in my life. That includes people in this church, neighbors. It includes my my very family, my wife, my kids, my grandkids. And when I get out of there, I might even make a few overdue calls to friends. For a short period of time, I might overlook things that would normally cause me angst. And then a little bit of time goes by, and I'm right back to living for today rather than living for eternity. When we are self-controlled and sober-minded, we will pray prayers that are eternal rather than prayers that are simply temporal. That's what Peter's getting at here. He's saying, be self-controlled and sober-minded. He says, live in light of eternity. Remember that life is short. Be sobered by Jesus' sacrifice and go and love others with the love that he loved you with. That takes us to verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sin. Peter isn't casually telling Christians to love one another. He's saying that life is short. The end is near. So above all, the first priority we have is to love one another. Don't just give lip service or simply try to get along. The the goal isn't to get along. Yes, we should get along. The goal is to love one another. Uh, Earnestly love one another, he says. He's concerned about an active, sincere love for one another in the church. The word earnestly, it's It has the picture of a sprinter leaning into the tape at the end of a race. Earnestly is the picture of a receiver stretched out into the end zone, doing everything he can with his fingertips to catch the pass. What he's not doing by describing earnest love is describing a soft, lazy, and primarily emotive love. He's not describing the type of love that moves only when one feels like loving. He's describing a cross-shaped love, a selfless love that is informed and motivated by the love of Christ. He's describing agape love, a give love that gives everything, even when we receive nothing. This upside-down kind of love brings joy to the giver, and it brings joy to the receiver. And this kind of love cannot be absent in a healthy church. God's love for you and me is in earnest, in active love. His love is not distant, but it's up close and personal. Jesus earnestly emptied himself to save sinners from a multitude of sins. The eternal God emptied himself, took on flesh, knowing that he would be hated and spit on and eventually crucified. 
so that we could be saved from the multitude of our sins. Literally, the multitude of sins means the whole number of sins. You see, God doesn't just say, I love you. He gave his son to pay for all of our sin. Yesterday's sin, the sin of your childhood, your sin today, the sin tomorrow, the whole multitude of sin. And he did that not just so that we can be forgiven, but so that we can be welcomed as strangers into his family where he's made space for us, where the welcome mat is out for us and his arms are open to us. You see, we're called to love others because God first loved us. Active, confessing, forgiving, and selfless love perseveres in the body of Christ. And it covers a multitude of sins. We're going to see Peter get practical. We're going to get to the heart of today's sermon. And we're going to be encouraged to open our place, giving space for relationship, where we can be conduits of God's grace to one another. Hospitality. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And the Greek word for hospitality has the notion of welcoming strangers. That's what hospitality means. It means to welcome stranger or love for the stranger. In Peter's day, it included opening uh, their door. Christians opened their doors to traveling Christians that were on a pilgrimage or traveling from one city to another. They were strangers in a sense that they didn't know each other. Hospitality is love in action. We're commanded to show it to one another in several places in Scripture. This isn't the only place. We see it in Romans 12, 13. We see it in Hebrews 13, 2. And did you know that it's a qualification for an elder? 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. It's right up there with being a husband of one wife. It's right up there with um, having a family that is under control. Hospitality. An elder must be hospitable. Christian hospitality aims to meet strangers and make them neighbors and meet neighbors and by God's power welcome them into the family of God through belief, repentance, and conversion. We should most assuredly show hospitality to those who don't have the hope of Christ. But the context in this passage is hospitality amongst believers. This is where we start. The world's going to know that we're Christians. They're going to know the love of Christ and the way that we live and love one another, live with and love one another. Peter's writing to believers who are most likely, who most likely met in small house churches. Um, this, this church would probably make up 10 churches in that time. I would imagine everyone knew each other and spent time in each other's home. Yet he exhorts them to show hospitality to one another. He's writing to those who already knew one another to show the love for the stranger to one another. They already know each other. So if hospitality is defined by showing love to a stranger, how is it that he can call Christians or exhort Christians to show hospitality to one another? Here's what I think he has in mind. We can be strangers to those we know by name and even those who occupy the same places with us day in and day out. 
We can be strangers in our own home, and we can certainly be strangers in the local church. I took this picture several years ago at the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art in Kansas City. And I took it because it had a sad caption that I believe was true even in the church. The, 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 the caption said this, the composition, this is a composition of anonymous figures that evokes the deep isolation that can occur even when we're surrounded by others. See, just the fact that we are here together, which is so good, that we get to encourage one another by, by the, the preaching of the Word and the singing of Scripture. But this, this, isn't the, this, isn't, this is a launching pad for community. That we, there, there are people, there are some of you that are here in isolation. And I feel like even in some ways, I'm a stranger to a lot of you. And we can't get to know one another. But we should strive to get to one another. At the core of hospitality is not simply a place in your home, providing three hots and a cot. Hospitality creates, uh, certainly involves the invitation to others to come into our place, but it's more than that. It's creating a space for relationship in our place. This might sound strange, but the meta-narrative of Scripture from beginning to end is a story of God's hospitality. That our God is a hospitable God. He provided everything the first humans needed to thrive and enjoy. I want you to listen as I read Genesis 1, 28-30 as he describes um, creation. And I want you to look for the words every and everything. And God blessed them, first man and woman. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of heaven, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Our God is a hospitable God. He didn't just create a place and give the first humans everything they needed physically. He made a space in his heart to be with them in the garden place, that he walked with the pinnacle of creation. Didn't just give them things to meet their needs, but he gave of himself in that garden place. And we see this all throughout history, God meeting the temporal needs of his children and promising to be with them. He has always been with his people via the tabernacle, the, the temple, the incarnation, that he came to be with us. He is with us today, Christian, by His Spirit, and He will be with us one day. We will be with Him throughout all of eternity. The Bible begins with God making a place for humanity to dwell with Him in the garden, and it ends with Him making a place for believers to dwell with Him in the city. And I want to just remind you of this place that we wait for where we're going to be with our hospitable God 
for all of eternity. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw, this is John speaking, he saw a vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. You see, God is finishing what he started in the garden. And between, uh, between the sin of our first ancestors and until he returns again, we live in a broken world that is full of death and decay. And there's so many things to enjoy, but our hope is not here. And if you're here today and you've got your hope in temporal things, that you're trying to build your own kingdom, that it's going to perish, it's going to burn, and that you have a creator who has open arms, and he is welcoming you with all your baggage. He's not saying clean it up and come. He's saying come and let me clean you up. He's saying come and be seated at my table. Come and be forgiven. You see, Jesus is a, a gracious host who constantly wake, welcomes wayward sinners who deserve his wrath. You see, we are a people whose only hope is that he would show us undeserved hospitality. I read this beautiful description of Jesus' hospitality recently. It says this, Like a king and a host, he prepares a table in the wilderness. Like a priest, he offers the pure unspotted lamb on behalf of the people of God for forgiveness of sins and restoration with God. Like a, like a host, he rains down provision in the desert, nearness when we're lonely, Welcome when we do not deserve it. He is not only the host, he is also the offering, the food the host offers to undeserving gifts. Because of his great love, Jesus the host offered himself so that we could feast with him for all of eternity. We will turn, one day he will return, and he will welcome to his table those who have been saved by grace. But before he welcomes us, he's going to judge the living and the dead. And for those without, without a relationship with Christ, who have yet to put their faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, all have sinned. Paul said he was the chief of sinners. There would be judgment. And for those who have been saved by faith, Jesus has already been judged for their sin. And they will be welcomed into his forever presence. Paul tells us to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. Thus, hospitality is more about the heart than the home. It's rooted in our love for God and our brothers and sisters in Christ and our desire to see all our neighbors come to know Jesus. And anytime we practice hospitality, we follow in the steps of our lavishly hospitable God. Hospitality is something that all Christians are called to practice. Regardless of the size of your home, the size of your bank account, or your gifting. I want to give just a few practical thoughts. We have learned that biblical hospitality is in the context of relationship. Opening our home, loaning a car, giving money is a good thing. 
but it doesn't fully capture the idea of biblical hospitality. It's easy to open a place in our home. It's easy for me to have somebody just shut, go in our basement and I can shut the door and they can use another bathroom and not mine. And they can drink drinks in the fridge down there and not drinks out of my fridge. But it's much more difficult and sacrificial to make space for a relationship and welcome people into our lives. We've had, as God does often, he's given me two like really cool scenarios. We had a family stay with us. We've had three families stay with us in the last three weeks. And one, um, all, all three of them are from out of town. And um, all three of them have several uh, similar stories. Um, they came to our house when we weren't there. We gave them the garage code. And we said, go in the basement. There's, there's, uh, there's snacks down there. Um, there's a warm, clean bed. Um, the um, sink and the toilet and the bathtub are clean. Keep it that way. Um, and then there's a fridge with drinks. And, um, and they went in. And uh, in two of those cases, we didn't see the people for two days. Is that hospitality? It's not. All three cases, we, uh, Nancy and I talked, and we were like, we wanted to know these people. We weren't, we weren't just shutting the door because we didn't want to exercise hospitality. Our schedule was just, so we had to schedule a lunch with one and a breakfast with another, and then time in the evening with the third couple. And you know what happened? We got to know them. We got to know their fears, their dreams. We got, to know, we got to know their grace story, how God got a hold of them. They got to hear our story. And they left. And, and two of these couples, we may never, all three of them actually, we may, we may never see again. But I've already been praying for them. I'm already worshiping God because I've heard their grace story on how he got a hold of them. That's biblical hospitality. Opening a place in our home for others is good, but opening a space for a relationship is better. Let me give you a couple more practical points. Scripture doesn't speak to the spiritual gift of hospitality. Does that surprise you? There's no gift of hospitality. Um, you go to Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians, 1 Peter, which is the, the place where it describes the spiritual gifts. Um, they're not listed there. Now, that doesn't mean that some of you might be more natural in given hospitality, but hospitality is a call for all Christians not just for those who are gifted in it. Next, hospitality is different than entertainment. Entertainment shoots for the making of good impressions that can be void of relationship. Hospitality opens arms and doors wide and welcomes people into our lives where we're ready and willing to make a space for relationship. In the same manner, entertainment thinks through form first. Hospitality thinks through function Stay with me on this. I've got a weird mind. I think through this. Chase and some others already know this. Um, for, uh, form says that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a place that's beautiful without thinking about who I'm inviting in and how it functions. That's not bad. Many of you have beautiful houses. Um, we've got, my wife has the gift of form. If you come into our house, um, it's beautiful. But we talk all the time about function. Like, honey, who are we going to have in our house? Or we have little kids in our house. Or we have elder people in our house. We have people in our house of different sizes. That like different drinks. That are gluten-free. That are vegan. We don't let the vegans come in. Uh, but the gluten-free we do. So if you're vegan, you haven't been to your house, there's a reason. You're marked. Uh, but think through, think through, um, think through function. 
when we buy a couch, when we built a drink station, we think through function. Who do we have in our house? Form should follow function for the hospitable Christian. Next, it doesn't depend upon the size of your home or your bank account to exercise biblical hospitality. Oftentimes, the most hospitable Christians are the ones that have the most meager means, the smallest house and the smallest bank account. All believers of varying demographics, varying personalities and incomes can and should show hospitality to one another. We've been to Nigeria and Burkina Faso. I've been there several times. And they live in oftentimes one room, maybe two room cement huts. And they cook inside on a, on a, uh, a fire uh, over coals. And they have nothing. And they're the most hospitable people I know. We sit on the floor while they cook over an open fire and they make us feel like we're the, we're the most important person on the planet. And after they're done cooking, they sit down with us. And they want to hear our story. And they tell us their story. These African saints have nothing, yet they've been given everything. So they sacrifice their nothing in order to share the love of Christ through hospitality. The point of the above example is not hospitality is, is not that hospitality is dependent upon the size or condition of our place. It's not conditioned upon the beauty of our, of our place, but it's conditioned upon the openness of our heart, creating space in our heart for relationship. And then um, he says, show hospitality without grumbling. Here's what I think that means. Well, I've already said it pretty much, but let me just emphasize it. It's just easy to put people in the basement or in a spare bedroom. But it's when, I, when I've got to make space in my day, in my heart, to engage with them in relationship, sometimes we can grumble. Because I think the church is pretty good at flybys, throwing food, throwing money, giving a room, giving a car, all good things. Don't hear me on that. Don't hear me wrong on that. But we don't take the next step. Oftentimes, I know I don't, because it's the more difficult step. Yes, you might be thinking, my home's a gift. It's a place of refuge for me. It's that one place where I can get away from people. And that's true. But do you also see your home as an incubator, as a hospital, as a place for refuge for others? Can you truly say mi casa and su casa? Mi casa, su casa, and mean it. There's a woman by the name of Rosaria Butterfield that wrote a book on hospitality called The Gospel Comes with a, with a House Key. And I love the sound of that. God took us in. He made us part of his family, and he gave us a seat at his table. Jesus displayed a generous hospitality throughout his life, and he promises to continue to welcome us forevermore. Jesus came and gave the keys to the front door to all who believe. His welcome mat is always out. And again, there's always a seat at his table. In Revelation 22, it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. 
And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of water of life come. And I'll say it again, that if you're here today, that the welcome mat is open for you. Christian, if you're walking in the shame of sin, you've been forgiven. There's no condemnation for Christ Jesus. Come, he says. Those of you that are walking in the guilt of sin or walking in the, in the, um, the selfishness of life and you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus, he's saying, come. Come, you who are weary and heavy laden, he says, and I will give you rest. And I'm going to need to cut part of this out for the second service. But you're going to get all of it. Where do I start? Like the Spirit of God, it's right here in Scripture. He wants us to show hospitality without grumbling. Where do I start? Start with prayer. God, what are you doing? Who have you providentially put in my life? And how do you want me to respond? Start simple. We have many new people here at Windsor Community Church who are not known and they're not connected. There's there's also many of you that have been here for a while and don't know each other. And even if you do know each other, you're living in isolation, that you're strangers to one another. Let me give you a practical step. I assume everybody eats. Vegans eat less. That's not in my notes, by the way. And I know I'm going to get chastised for it. Here's where you start. On Saturday night or Sunday morning, put, put a, a crock pot or, for you young people, an Instapot uh, soup on. Uh, we bought an Instapot, by the way. Way overrated. It, it does cook everything fast, but it comes out like torch dinosaur. Like it's, you can't even like chew on it. It's true. My wife's a good cook. Every time, except when she uses the Instapot. It's not her fault. It's the Instapot's fault. Put on a, put on a meal or soup um, the night before the, or the day before. Um, pray on your way to church and look for um, providential opportunities to invite somebody into your home. Many of you have done that. There's a lot of you that, that are already living this out. I've been in your home. Didn't eat your food because you were vegan. No. What? <laughs> And, and just pray, invite people in, and let the stories begin. Just tell your story, ask for theirs, and watch His grace overflow um, in the threshold of our homes. When we practice hospitality, we're living out our real, messy, and redeemed lives before one another. It's not about perfection, it's about what? Direction. We're messed up. That's why we need Jesus. Invite people into your home. And even though some of us may be more comfortable and equipped to extend hospitality, again, it's not a gift, but it's a means through which we can exercise our gifts. And Peter's going to finish here, and I'm going to finish here in verses 10 through 11. And he's going to, he says this, as each has received a gift or grace, gift is from the Greek word charis or grace, use it to serve one another as God's stewards of God's very grace. Here's, here's the point. 
The point here isn't um, go out and do spiritual gift surveys. Not that you shouldn't. It's good for you to understand what your gift is. The point here is that you have a gift. Peter puts it in two categories here. That's it. A serving gift and a speaking gift. And some of you have both. Some of you have one or the other. And the point of Peter here is is that that, um, invite people into your place, into the place of your home, make space to engage in relationship, and then turn on the spigot of God's grace that is going to flow through you as you engage in your spiritual gift of either serving or speaking. This is the way it works in our home. If you've been there, my wife is a master. She loves being in the kitchen. And I love not being in the kitchen. Um, I like talking and asking questions and interrogating people and telling our story. And she loves, uh, she, she loves to just like to fill up the coffee and the water. And, but when she speaks, if some of you are old enough, it's like E.F. Hutton. You need to listen. She, um, but we, we operate in our giftedness. So the point here, don't get caught up in this, the point is, is that, that we invite people in our home for, to, to give space for a relationship, and then we, after praying, we know that, we, that God's Spirit is in us, that we've been saved by His grace, and we let His grace, His loving grace, flow through us by serving and speaking and listening to one another. And just watch this church grow relationally. Just watch the onlooking world um, observe us and see the way that we love one another and ask the question, what is it that you have that I don't have? I've never seen people love and serve one another in the way that you do that. So we can, so I'm going to finish there. And then the end of verse 11, he says this, we do, we do all of that. We live, we live, um, sober-minded lives, earnestly loving one another, inviting people into the place of our home, making space for relationship, engaging, not just putting them in the basement, submitting ourselves to the Spirit of God and turning on the spigot of His grace and let it overflow to one another, then the end of verse 11, here's what happens, that, that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. So the three words I want you to remember is that God has given you a place. I would encourage you to make space for relationship. And let the grace of God flow through you to encourage and edify brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. God, you're good, and you're great, and you're greatly to be praised. And um, Lord, I'm so thankful that your word is living and active, that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. I'm so thankful that your word, uh, that you promise that your word will uh, will not return void. I'm so thankful that... um, you can use um, a cracked pot like me to, um, um, who left myself can't put two words together to be able to proclaim your excellencies. And God, I pray that your name would be hallowed this morning, 
that you would be the famous one. God, that you, we would be reminded of your welcoming hospitality. And once again, Spirit of God, please, I pray, would you right now even um, welcome those who have been strangers and stuck and lost in their sin, that you would welcome them into your family. We love you, and we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.